everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. WDET's book club is back for a third year, and we're going to spend the summer delving into a book and talking with experts and with you about what it means in the context of our world. You can tune into the discussions about this year's pick, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, right here on Detroit Today. You can do it online, and you can join our Facebook group called WDET Book Club. I am really pleased that there are about 500 people who have signed up to participate in that Facebook group where we are going to have some really interesting conversations over the next couple of months. Many of you have already started reading Ellison's novel, which was published by Random House in 1952 and won the National Book Award for Fiction the following year. It's considered one of the most formative works of the 20th century, and it's notable for Ellison's absurdist approach to storytelling and for the book's frank discussions of race and identity in American society. Ellison's interrogation of power, of systemic racism, and inequality has never felt more urgent or pertinent than it does today, as the nation erupts with exasperation over police brutality and systemic racism. We are going to read and discuss Invisible Man's pinpoint descriptions of inequality in the 20th century and bring them forward to today's demonstrations and protests. Here to help us do that today is uh, a, an expert on American leftist writers of the 20th century and the H. Chandler Davis Collegiate Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan, Alan Wald. Uh, Alan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's start with this. Uh, what is it about Invisible Man, written in 1952, that is so resonant today in 2020. And what is that text telling us about our world today? You know, there's a contradictory aspect to Ellison's work. Uh, I feel that it is quite relevant because I know his background. That is, he came out of the African-American literary cultural left. And so the book embodies a lot of experiences and perspectives of the left. But at the same time, when the book was published, Ellison was changing his views. He was becoming increasingly more moderate. And he explicitly said many times that this was not a protest novel. He even said that the issues that had motivated him would be gone in 20 years. That's by 1973. Uh, and uh, there are many other aspects of the book, of his life uh, and statements that might contradict the idea that the book is relevant. Hmm. But I personally, seeing where he came from and not reading backwards, uh, feel that it is relevant because it shows the historical struggle of African Americans for liberation. The, the book is a kind of uh, sequence of initiations into roles that were created for African Americans in the 20th century uh, in terms of accommodation to uh, a racist society. And as the Invisible Man, the narrator who's never never given a name, goes through these different uh, rites of passage and indebted identities imposed upon him, uh, he begins to realize that he has to determine his own future. Uh, and this includes ex political experiences with the left. I think, you know, a lot of the criticism that came of the book uh, later on in the 60s, when, you know, frankly, Ellison was not re regarded very favorably by uh, young African-American and other radicals, 
um, is the fact that he so negatively portrays the Brotherhood, which is an interracial organization that has mass protests calling for for social justice. Um, so the, the treatment of um, the psychological aspects of racism, uh, racism in the North as well as the South, that was very important, that racism is not simply a, a Southern phenomenon, but it exists uh, in, in, in some ways comparable forms in the North, uh, and the attempt to impose a subservient role on African Americans. These are all things I think would resonate with the present moment. Yeah, uh, Take us back to 1952, though, and place Ellison in the context of the conversation that was happening then. This is in the infancy, really, of the civil rights movement. You're starting to see people stand up and say, uh, this is not okay, the way that African Americans are, are treated in, in America, and we need things to change. It is before, though, the headline-grabbing or generation-defining incidents, I guess, that, and milestones that, that come to define the civil rights movement. But what's going on in 1952 uh, in this conversation as Ellison publishes this book? Well, again, I look at this historically. So the novel was begun in 1945. Uh, Ellison was in the middle uh, and he was still at 1945, very left wing. He was writing a novel about World War II and about an African American pilot who was captured by the Nazis in Europe. And suddenly he had this thought, "I am an invisible man," and began to write Invisible Man. And he did it over the next seven or so years and completed it in 1952. And at that point, he himself was moving away from a radical critique of politics. <clears throat> he had this tremendous past. And, of course, Invisible Man is based on his own experiences with racism. Mm -hmm. But his thinking about the future uh, was going in a different direction. Uh, so it's ironic that this novel, which does portray a tremendous amount of uh, racial oppression and resistance against it, uh, came out at a moment when uh, society was changing in 1952, that is Brown versus Board of Education, the beginning of the early civil rights movement, and so on. And the book benefited from that changing atmosphere. But his own thinking was not going in that direction. That is, he was not uh, a participant in the civil rights movement. He was not a supporter of Martin Luther King. He was not opposed to the Vietnam War, which, of course, was one of King's great causes. So he's going in a different direction. But the book itself spoke to the issues that were arising. Uh, and when it appeared, uh, there are a lot of other great African-American novels that were more uh, explicitly in the protest uh, tradition that mm -hmm. appeared at the same time. It, people might say Ellison is by far the best in terms of the quality of the prose and so on, but that doesn't mean the other novels were um, at all as significant or, or inferior. For example, John Oliver Killens, mm -hmm. who was a big antagonist of Ellison, published A Young Blood in 1954, which is a novel that's re responding directly to the new protest movement. Uh, William Gardner Smith had written uh, Last of the Conquerors just before. Gwendolyn Books published Mud Martha. Uh, Willard Motley, who published We Fished All Night, uh, and Petrie, The Narrows, and earlier she had published um, The Street, which has now been in a big revival. So he's writing at a moment when other writers are directly engaged in the civil rights movement. He is moving away from it, but the content of his book seems to confirm the necessity of the civil rights movement. Um, one thing perhaps he did excel at even more was he was trying to show a fullness to the African-American experience. That's something that the he felt the protest novel was not capable of doing, that it is it only showed African-Americans 
uh, as oppressed and beaten down and fighting back. He wanted to show a richer, broader culture, and he wanted to show African-American culture as part of your American culture. Mm. It is an, an integral part of your American culture. And, of course, the book does blend uh, very significantly many aspects of both black and Euro-American culture. Yeah. Uh, the, the themes in the book that resonate today, again, I think are really powerful, and there are a lot of them. Talk about the ones that, that you think just directly connect to this moment right now where we're talking about authoritarian abuse of black people in, in America, where we're talking about how that connects to the past and to the infrastructure of cultural racism and inequality in America. Which, which parts of the book for you really speak most powerfully to that? Well, of course, the, the dramatization of certain social struggles are very impressive. If you remember, the, the moment when the Invisible Man becomes politicized is in resisting the eviction scene. Mm-hmm. A black couple are being evicted, and as the possessions are taken out of their house, he sees that they had a you know, background in slave experiences and various kinds of economic oppression uh, and uh, that goes on into the present. This eviction scene is set in the 1930s. Um, and uh, that radicalizes him and makes him a figure of protest. And he becomes an organizer in Harlem and in the black community. He does unite in an interracial organization, although he ends up feeling that he was exploited uh, by the, the white members of the organization, or at least most of them, and the way he had been exploited by uh, his experiences at the black college, which seems to be based on Tuskegee and so on. Uh, so the, the economic... Uh, Oppression that stems from the slave background is something people are becoming more conscious of. Um, the use of myth and symbols to distort his life is also important. When he's at the Black College, there is a mythology built around the founder, mm. who is based on Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. who founded Tuskegee, and he's asked to believe a myth. And, of course, the, uh, the character, Reverend Barbie, I think he's called, who uh, presents his myth, is later exposed as being blind. Blindness is a symbolic a feature that comes up in a number of times in the novel, including Brother Jack, the leader of the, the Brotherhood, is also, he's missing an eye, he's half-blind. Um, so the use of myth to distort history and the need to find out the actual history and the function of these myths, that's also something people are coming to terms with as they look at these, you know, these incredible Confederate fa- uh, uh, statues and the naming of military bases after traitors, you know, Confederate <laughs> traitors, and these, you know, Christopher Columbus being held up as uh, a figure of reverence and so on. Uh, these are part of a way of, of creating myths that put people into social roles that work against their own interests. So to challenge and question these myths, which is really what Invisible Man is about. I mean, the, it's the character goes to these rites of passage, which he refers to as boomerangs, mm-hmm. and increasingly wakes up. Uh, to each of the traps in which society has tried to ensnare him until finally he goes underground and realizes he has to define himself in order to survive. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Alan Wald. He is the H. Chandler Davis Collegiate Professor Emeritus in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. He studies 20th century U.S. cultural leftism. Uh, and we're talking about Invisible Man, which is our book club pick for the WDET Book Club this summer. We're talking about uh, the book itself, the themes within the book, the structure and the storytelling within the book, and how it projects forward to this moment in time when we see millions of people 
taking to the streets to protest police brutality against black people, to protest uh, systemic racism and how it connects to that brutality, and to demand that things change, that finally in America we come to terms with the ways in which racism has shaped this country and its sort of uh, culture and history, and to, to say that we should be doing it differently, that we can do it better. If you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Uh, talk about if you are reading Invisible Man with us right now. Is it uh, something that you're trying to, to get through still? I know it's a very long book, uh, and if you started when we announced this, you might be nearing about the middle or or two-thirds of the way through at this point. Give us a call. Tell us what your impressions are of this narrative and why you think it, it connects to this to this moment. Uh, do you think Ellison's work still applies today in the conversations that we're having about racism and inequality? Uh, give us a call and tell us what you think about this current national movement against systemic racism. Have you been looking to other kinds of historical markers or events to help you make sense of this current moment. Uh, also tell us what role you think writers and artists play in political movements like this. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Alan, I want to I talk a little more about Ellison and his transformation, which you've begun to talk about all, already. What is it that motivates his estrangement from things like the civil rights movement and radical politics? Uh, and put that in the context of this book, which, of course, makes him very famous and and becomes his his signature work uh, how does how does he come to reconcile that as he makes that change it's a complicated question and there are different ideas uh, let me mention that uh, people reading this book will probably turn to reference books if they want to know about the background and uh, I'll just mention that one of the most uh, widely used reference books is the Oxford Companion to African American Literature. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the entry under Ellison, the first thing it says uh, in, at the end of paragraph one um, is, Ralph Ellison was an Uncle Tom to some, a literary father figure to others. Ralph Ellison has secured his niche in the canon of African-American and American letters. Well, one thing I'd add to that is uh, he's in the canon of world literature. I mean, this is a world-class novel, and uh, you know, one of the most outstanding, maybe the greatest American novel uh, ever written, including to be an important uh, African-American text. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the change in Ellison, I think we do have to go back and historically look at where he was coming from. Uh, he was writing in a period when it looked like the African-American political struggle was in decline. That is, uh, people had great expectations after World War II. African-Americans fought in the U.S. military, and as in World War I, they expected to return home and be able to fight for justice and achieve justice in the United States. And, of course, uh, great repress, political repression set in uh, after World War II. Um, by 1946 and seven, people were being persecuted for their political ideas. Everybody was accused of being communist. The anti-communist witch hunt went after black radical organizations. I'm sure you know what happened to Du Bois, Robeson, 
Langston Hughes was pilloried, and so on and so forth. And Ellison saw this going around him, and I think he lost hope. And I think when he wrote Invisible Man, although he was capturing uh, authentic experiences in racial oppression and anti-racist struggle and unconsciousness, he had more or less uh, turned into um, in an individualist direction. And you can see that at the end of the novel, the main character, I hate to give, give away spoilers here, <laughs> underground after fighting against the black nationalists and fighting against the communists and fighting against the establishment figures, um, and he's underground, and he comes to the conclusion that it's all in your mind, that you can set your will to do whatever you want, and that's the answer, and you can manipulate people, you can lie to people as long as you maintain your inner self, and that's the way to survive. And, you know, at that moment when he published Invisible Man, uh, he was a nobody. He'd had a few, most of his writing had been done in communist publications, Mm -hmm. particularly one called The New Masses. And suddenly the novel comes out, he's a big sensation. He published it in 52, and in 53 he achieves the uh, National Book Award, Award, which is a big deal back then. He's the first African-American to do so and begins to become a world-class figure, and it's a kind of entry ticket into another world he hadn't known. And I'm not, I wouldn't call him a sellout. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's a great artist, and in fact, he, he stayed by these uh, sort of conservative principles despite a lot of pressure and harassment. Mm-hmm. I mean, calling him an Uncle Tom, you know, in, in this history book, sure. uh, you know, edited by African-Americans and a major source is not very nice. Um, but I think that he found a new way of looking at things. He did survive and thrive. Uh, he did not use his newfound status to help other African-American writers. I think that's a big deal in a negative criticism. Uh, you know, the first thing he was asked to do when he became famous was to endorse Maud Martha. A great book came out a year after his by uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, the uh, poet from Chicago. He refused to write an endorsement. He refused to support other up-and-coming writers and he became very much an establishment figure, and you can see photographs of him with, um, fig- especially figures in the Johnson administration. He loved the Johnson administration, uh, so he found a new identity for himself. Um, it's also interesting that he's known as a uh, brilliant jazz critic, and of course, this novel has a lot of jazz aspects to it. It's highly um, inventive, yes. uh, and and there are many in the references to the blues. I mean, the song, What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue, resonates throughout it. And yet he hated John Coltrane <laughs> and Miles Davis and Charles Mingus. Uh, you know, strange, I mean, you know, that that he would be so negative toward, you know, the. I mean, they call Miles Davis the Picasso of jazz. Yeah. And he, you know, he liked uh, Duke Ellington and he, he liked Jimmy Rushing and so on. So he's a he's a con- complex and contradictory figure. Yeah, you know, in some ways, I've thought that that theme of invisibility, which in the book is highly racialized and and is used as a uh, you know a tool to tell a story about race, I think is is kind of more globally uh, appropriate for for Ellison himself. I think he he felt invisible not just because he was black, he, he felt invisible just overall. Yes, and one of the interesting things about that is if you look at the front of the book, there are two quotations in the, before the novel begins, before that prologue. Uh, one is from Herm Melville, and the second one is from T.S. Eliot's Family Reunion, and it has a character, and if you know the Family Reunion, it's a white British 
upper-class character saying, I tell you, it is not me you were looking at, not me you were grinning at, not me your confidential looks incriminate, but that other person, if person, that you thought I was. Mm-hmm. Let your necrophily, and by the way, he uses a lot of big words, yes. necrophily <laughs> means a kind of obsession with corpses, feed right. upon that carcass. So right from the beginning, he's presenting invisibility in terms of a, a white character who doesn't seem to be particularly oppressed, but not being seen. And even though the novel is about the specificity of black characters being forced into stereotypes and the perception of whites, um, in fact, it has a universal residence with everybody, including just a young person who's being forced into a certain role and not seen as they are. Um, and that's kind of the, it's the doubleness of this novel, that he can take a broad theme and yet give it an, bring it to life in terms of the African-American context and link himself to world literature. The quote above that is from Herman Melville. Was uh, Elliot Melville were big influences on Wright, um, and it's from Benito Serino, which is the novel of a slave rebellion. And there, the main character, who is a, a white captain who has survived the slave rebellion, which was very violent, um, is being told by another captain, uh, "You are saved." More and more astonished uh, uh, and pained, "You are saved." But what has cast such a shadow upon you? And if you've read the story by Melville, you know what casts a shadow is he knows the whites are really responsible for the violent rebellion because they enslave the blacks um, to begin with. And in fact, what he's saying about American society is, you know, what will come, anything negative that comes out of this racial situation, you whites are responsible for because you committed the original sin. You created the circumstances when forcing people to have to rebel in uncomfortable and maybe even violent ways. So there's this, this sort of genius in the way he sets up invisibility and our interlocking fates uh, that I think is also relevant to the present. Yes. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. And when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with Alan Wald, professor of American culture at the University of Michigan. And we are going to get to your calls. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, what it meant when it was written, what it means today, and how it is informing the way you're thinking about all of the protests for change that we're seeing in American streets. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Alan Wald. He is the H. Chandler Davis Collegiate Professor Emeritus in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. He studies the U.S. cultural left in the 20th century, and we are talking about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, the WDET book club for this summer of 2020. We're reading it because of the relevance of this powerful narrative about racism in America, written in 1952 in 2020. 
all of the things that we're seeing take place in the streets right now with people demanding change, demanding an end to police brutality against black people, demanding an end to systemic racism that has been with us since the founding of this country. Uh, it's all explicated by this narrative written by Ralph Ellison in 1952. We really want to hear from you as well. Are you reading this book along with us this summer? And where are you in the book? What are your impressions of this story? And how do you think it connects to the things that we're talking about right now? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Dan in Detroit. Dan, welcome to the Hi. show. Hey. Good morning. Hi. Um, yes, I just wanted to, I haven't read The Invisible Man yet, but uh, I just wanted to compare the parallels to a book in the 60s called Black Like Me, where this white man took these pills and it turned his pigment dark. Hmm. And there's a... And they made a movie about it. And there's yes. a scene in the movie where there's a black man in his neighborhood that has a shoe shine stand, and he, he swears that he never forgets a pair of shoes. So he goes there as a white man, and then he comes back when he's black, and the the black man is totally blown away. He was like, well, how did you do that? What's going on? He says, I'm doing a social experiment. And there's another scene in the movie where he gets on the bus, and the, the white bus driver says, hey, boy, you know, sit in the back. And so he sits in the front and he said, didn't you hear me? He says, well, I thought you were talking to a boy. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a man. Well, I don't understand. You know, so, you know, I'm just drawing the parallels yeah. to the social experiment. It's kind um, of a, that's a, it's an interesting comparison, Dan. I, I don't know that I've ever thought of those two books as, as kind of mirrors of each other, but certainly the narrative there is, a reflection, I guess, of the other side of of the experience. Alan Wald, I wonder what you make of that that comparison. Well, Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin uh, was a, a kind of minor sensation. Uh, I don't think that it's taken too seriously anymore. Mm -hmm. And by the way, John Howard Griffin, <clears throat> he apparently died of that experiment where he put chemicals on his skin. Um, and it does give a small slice of uh, the kind of thing that you see in Invisible Man in terms of, you know, you're perceived in certain ways once your skin color is judged to be a certain way and so on. Um, so in that sense, it's, uh, you know, it does have a, a minor parallel, but it just doesn't contain the kind of rich history and, and cultural references of this masterpiece. So that's a kind of a, a light version, interesting to look at, but yeah. it's, it's not of the stature. I mean, reading an Invisible Man is, uh, you're reading a world class, you're, you're reading War and Peace. You know, you're reading something. <laughs> right, right. And it's it's a challenging book. Um, 580 pages. It's, I was going to say, it is such a long read. Uh, and I remember when, the first time I read it was in high school. It was part of our curriculum. And and I, I, it was the toughest read of the, of the semester because of the length. I mean, and, and the complexity, of course. Of, of the story, but uh, it, it is very... You need your dictionary. Yeah, you, know, you do. I, one of the first <laughs> words right. of the book is ectoplasm. You know? That's right. You know, it's not a word we use every day, uh, but it's very relevant to the argument because these, uh, he's trying to point out his invisibility is not some magical chemical that makes him disappear. His invisibility is other people projecting yes. things onto him. That, that's quite different from, for example, the, the H.G. Wells 
novel, which is now a popular movie and was originally a popular movie, The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man, Man right. Uh, where, you know, you, uh, he actually is invisible. This, yeah. this character is, um, is just uh, he's an instrument of other people's fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John in Dearborn asks a similar question. He wants you to compare Richard Wright with Ralph Ellison. Richard Wright, of course, uh, is another famous African-American author and somebody I uh, have feel a real connection with. He spent some of his formative years in Natchez, Mississippi, which is where my father and his family are from. And when I go to Natchez, I go see the house that uh, Richard Wright lived in as a child. Uh, can you compare Right and Ellison's works. Yes, it's very important. I mean, this is a this is the kind of context in which Ellison needs to be seen. Uh, readers today might look backwards and they would think, well, you know, Ralph Ellison, a major black novel. Let's compare him to let's compare to Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or Jesmond Ward to take somebody very contemporary. But uh, his real context is Richard Wright uh, when. Uh, uh, Ellison first came to New York from Tuskegee in 1936. He immediately met Langston Hughes, who introduced him to Richard Wright, and he be became very close friends, and their correspondence was recently published in a volume of uh, Ralph Ellison letters. So Richard Wright was seen as the archetypal protest novel, and people like uh, Ellison and also James Baldwin took a very negative attitude toward that, although Wright was their mentor, both of them. I mean, he made them up. He was generous in a way that Ellison was not. He supported Ellison. And you can see scenes from Richard Wright's life in this, uh, in this novel. If you read Black Boy, mm -hmm. Ellison did a brilliant uh, interpretation of Black Boy, Richard Wright's autobiography, called Richard Wright's Blues, which appeared in the mid-1940s, right after the book was published. It's been reprinted many times. It's a masterpiece. Uh, but you can see that he borrows certain scenes that probably didn't happen to Ellison. Even that famous battle royale scene of the African-American youths being pitted against each other for mm -hmm. money by the whites and so on. If you read Black Boy, you'll see a scene where young Richard Wright is not pitted against a group, but he's pitted against another uh, fellow in a place where he works, and the whites kind of set it up as this battle royale and so on. And the whole experience of going through the communist movement and then becoming uh, disillusioned in the 40s Although that's also Ellison, uh, but it's more Richard Wright because uh, Richard Wright was a—I mean, he—he <clears throat> he had a staff position of the Daily Worker. He was a public spokesperson. Ellison was more a writer and he and sort of sideline participant. Uh, and the influence of Richard Wright, though originally it was positive, because Richard Wright, when he wrote, for example, Native Son, he stretched the boundaries of U.S. literature to make a character who was the protagonist. Uh, and uh, the victim is also a victimizer. I mean, that's the the thing about uh, Bigger Thomas. He does yes. commit two murders. Yes. He does murder a black woman in addition to accidentally kill, killing Mary Dalton. It added a, a layer of complexity where you find yourself identifying with a double murderer and so on. And it, it's a, a very challenging work, and it's um, sad that people, re at the time, Ellison and Baldwin, reduce this to a mere protest novel because mm -hmm. it's much broader. So Ellison came out of a Richard Wright background, but he did move away from Wright, and they became less friendly. He didn't publicly attack Wright the way that Baldwin did in everybody that essay, Everybody's Protest Novel. But he did distance himself from Wright and go in another direction. Wright remained a, a radical um, and, and something of a Marxist all the way to the end, uh, fighting the battles for collective struggle and for African liberation and so on whereas Ellison became increasingly an establishment figure. Yeah.
Yeah. Uh, Dan, again, thanks very much for the call. And John in Dearborn, thanks for your question as well. Let's go to Martha in Lake Orion. Martha, what's on your mind? Hello. Hi. Um, the, this professor um, has sounds like he has taught this over several decades. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm... <laughs> What what would you say stood out as the difference in the conversations you would have had 30 years ago as opposed to the conversations you would have had with students 15 years ago? And would you have shared with the students the differences that you had observed that would have been different from a decade and a half before? And how would they have responded to that? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Martha. I'm really glad you called and asked that. Alan Wald, how has the discussion of this book changed in your classroom or these issues changed over over the decades? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I've been, re- I've been retired for six years, so I can't <laughs> speak to how students at the moment are would talk about it. I noticed that James Baldwin has had this gigantic revival. I mean, he is seen yes. as, as the major figure. And, of course, it's uh, even though Baldwin in the 1950s was you know, not involved in social struggles. He did sort of redeem himself when he wrote The Fire Next Time and those brilliant later works. Uh, so I'm not sure today what the discussion would be in the classroom and and whether or not they would automatically see the problematic side. I mean, the, the problem with a, a work like this is whether or not you're going to just read it and respond to the words on the page uh, the way you feel and the way you would like to see Ellison, and, and possibly you would see Ellison as much more radical today if, if you did that. Uh, on the other hand, if you were focused on, let's say, an issue like gender, I think you'd be much more critical mm. of Ellison. I mean, look at the women in this. Yes. <laughs> They're awful. Uh, and uh, the question of feminism, the woman question, is reduced to a, a joke in yeah. here, where it's really just a way for white women to pursue black men, and it's a cover-up for neuroses, and he's not sympathetic to women's uh, rights or including black women. There is one sympathetic black woman character, Mary Rambo, who is, but she's seen a symbolic of sort of Southern culture that survives in the North and nurtures him, and, and uh, she just vanishes and, uh, in, the, in the published version. She plays a bigger role in the original unpublished version, which is important to, uh, to know something about. Uh, when I first began teaching Ellison in, uh, here at the University of Michigan, I came here in 1975, I taught him in a world literature context. I consider Invisible Man one of the masterpieces. I taught it in a class with, uh, you know, D.H. Lawrence and Doris Lessing and, and Stendhal. And, and there is a connection to Stendhal in the sense that the main character moves from a, a more rural, naive situation into an urban center where he yes. becomes more and more educated. Um, and we, we had very complicated discussions about what Ellison was trying to say and what he stood for and so on. Uh, and over time, as um, people became more interested in, um, there were more black-specific courses, or sometimes I taught courses on um, a number of, of oppressed groups, uh, uh, literature of people of color survey and kind of thing. It became hard to include this book because it's so long. You know, you can't really fit it into a survey and read much else. It's, as I say, it's it's almost 600 pages long. Um <laughs> So I'm afraid that in that context, I tend to rely on uh, shorter books uh, and, and in some ways more accessible books by Baldwin and Ellison. And of course, Toni Morris, but then black women writers became big. Yes. And I had always worked on Ann Petrie. Ann Petrie is a major, major figure for me, and I'm glad to see she's being revised. Uh, but it was then more Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and so on. Um, and then the, Ellison was seen, I think, more critically for gender reasons. So I would love to know 
what's happening today. And I, I urge that in your classroom, <laughs> in your, sorry, in your radio program, you get somebody who's currently using it in who's the classroom and see now. what yeah. white and black students are saying about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Invisible Man by Ralph Allison. We'll keep Alan Wald, Professor Emeritus in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan with us. And we will get to more of your calls. Sandy in Detroit, Raymond in Ypsilanti, Adrian in Detroit, we'll hear from you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. My guest is Alan Wald, the H. Chandler Davis Collegiate Professor Emeritus in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. And we're talking about Invisible Man, which is our book club read of uh, this summer 2020 here on, at WDET. You can participate in the book club by listening to the show, which we will be talking about Invisible Man and its themes and its structure and how it is so relevant today throughout the summer. You can also go to the WDET Book Club Facebook page where there are about 500 people now signed up to discuss the book uh, with me and with lots of other people who will be inviting to participate in that forum. Uh, of course, today you can give us a call at 313-577-1019 and uh, discuss the book with us and uh, with, with Alan Wald. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, Alan, I want to talk about the fact that Invisible Man is one of the books that shows up on book on lists of banned books very frequently, and I, I want to talk about why that's true and and what the reaction to this was when it was published, and and how that sort of set it on this course to be one of the books that uh, that people think their children, for instance, shouldn't read in in high school. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, when the book was published, it was acclaimed by the establishment. The National Book Award gave it sort of an imprimatur. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was attacked. It was, first of all, attacked by the African-American left for political reasons. And, you know, here I'll mention the big attack appeared in Paul Robeson's newspaper, uh, which was called Freedom. And the book review editor was a woman named Lorraine Hansbury. I'm sure you know from sure. uh, Raising in the Sun. And uh, she had previously attacked Richard Wright, a friend of Ellison, who had also left the communist movement, and uh, she gave the book to John Oliver Killens. I've mentioned him as a writer I admire very much for Youngblood uh, to review, and he just said it was a worthless piece of junk. And another influential black radical critic of the period named Ernest, Ernest Kaiser, who worked at the Schomburg Institute in Harlem, uh, the library, uh, also attacked it very harshly, as, as many, many other people on the left. And in the 60s, of course, uh, Amiri Baraka, previously known as Leroy Jones, attacked it and so on. So it's politically attacked. In terms of its uh, being banned, many books were banned on the grounds of sexual references and uh, you know inappropriate language and so on. And uh, that's sometimes a cover, particularly in the South, where the book is uh, you know seen as threatening to the status quo. Mm -hmm. uh, the scenes in the South are 
are not very pretty, uh, particularly that incident and the smoker and so on. But I think the you know the sexual references are frequently the most common thing, and there had you know R- Richard Rice's native son who came under attack, um, James T. Farrell's um, Studs Lonigan books were, and, and the subsequent books uh, were were attacked. Uh, Edmund Wilson's um, Memoirs of Hecate County was attacked. These are all books by political radicals, but also attacked for sexual references. Ursie's um, Caldwell's uh, novels were always attacked. He was a Southern white man, but he wrote violently against racism and God's Little Acre and other books, but they're attacked for the sexual uh, elements. And there are uh, quite a few sexual references in Ellison, which are, of course, today not <laughs> not particularly shocking, uh, except for their psychological revelation. I think that the, the use of white women by the black men and the smoker, they imagine this is the, the greatest thing that the black young men could desire, and they hold her up as a uh, as in a taunting way, uh, and then later the Mr. Norton, the trustee, the wealthy trustee from the North, who asked this black sharecropper, um, true blood, to perform the story of incest and so on. You know, it turns out that Mr. Norton himself is obsessed with uh, with his daughter. These kinds of things were seen as um, disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get back to listeners here. Sandy in Detroit. Sandy, welcome to the show. Yep, Sandy, there's something going on with your phone there. Let's get that worked out, and uh, we'll we'll come back to you. Let's go to Raymond in Ypsilanti. Raymond, welcome to Hi, the show. Hi, how you doing? Good, how are you? Okay, uh, a couple of things. Um, R- R- Marka Ross Williams is a black woman. She's running for the treasury of the Ypsilanti Township. Mm-hmm. And you, if you saw the news last night, you saw where uh, her car was shot up, and... Uh, Nobody has, uh, you know, done anything. There's never, there's been a very few black people holding office out there. Ethel Howard was a clerk many years ago, but she's running for the treasury of uh, Islamic Township, and she's getting all kinds of barriers. Now they're getting physical threats mm. uh, against her. Now, let me tell you something about me. I think I know you or whatever, but I graduated from the University of Michigan Law School mm-hmm. way back in 1973. And I keep an eye on it. I'm only eight miles away. I live in Ypsilanti. And the issue in terms of black attorneys, I went to law school at the University of Michigan, and we're getting no help. Uh, the majority of black graduates from the University of Michigan Law School aren't making any money. Not to mention the football players, who are basically slaves, mm. and they're making tons of money. I think the slaves during civil rights, uh, before the Civil War, made more money than the football players at the University of Michigan. Meanwhile, there's billions of dollars being made off of them, and they're not being compensated for it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of inequities, inequities here in our community, mm-hmm. and especially when you start talking about money. You know, uh, when it comes to money, uh, black and African Americans are generally left out. Yeah. Uh, Raymond, I, I really appreciate the call and the info and perspective uh, Alan Wald, one of the things, one of the points he made that really resonates with me is this: the 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 position that black athletes find themselves in 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 America, especially amateur black athletes. Each time I think about that question about paying football players or basketball players for for their college performances, I I, I flash back to that scene. The, the battle royale in in uh, invisible man as as sort of predicate for all of this and, and and maybe that's an unfair indictment of 
collegiate sports, but but it does, in my mind, at least connect. Well, that's a yeah. That's a you know the novel begins with that scene, and by, mm-hmm. by the way, he published the Battle Royale earlier. It was obviously key to the whole perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is a, one of the central themes of the book is the uh, exploitation of African Americans um, for for entertainment and so on. Where somebody these are very rich white men in the uh, in that smoker scene. Yes, and we also uh, remember the scene with Mary Rambo, who is a sympathetic character, but she has this um, what do you call this sort of object and and that uh, is sitting on her table, which is a a uh, it's sort of a, a head of a black man with a kind of a giant smile, and you put coins in it. And it fl- you put a coin in the hand, and the hand flips, <laughs> flips the coin into the mouth and so on. And the, and the visible man accidentally breaks it, which is, you know, he has a lot of strange accidents. And, the ac- and then he decides that he will have to pay her for it, so he tries to take it away with him, and he throws it in the trash can, and people run to the trash can, they grab it, and they give it, and they say, you know, mister, you left us behind. He, he can never get rid of that thing, and finally he puts it in his briefcase where he carries all the symbols of his career. So that's also a symbol of black exploitation mm-hmm. uh, for white entertainment, that, you know, that object. And that, that's later, even when he's in the North. So this is a central theme in the book, and it raises the, a problem for Ellison, in that if he says it's all in our heads, that we just have to identify ourselves, well, what about the economic situation? Doesn't that limit us? Mm-hmm. Can we just imagine we're free? He talks about affirming the principles on which the United States was founded, which is terrific, except there's one problem. The political freedom does not necessarily bring economic freedom, and in fact, economic inequality can subvert political freedom, and that's probably why Ellison became radicalized in the, you know, in the first place. So, uh, I think that in the end, we have to see that the economic issues are still central. And when people talk about racism being systemic, it means that racism is connected with the larger socioeconomic system. And we have to think about rearranging that so that there can be more uh, equity in order to achieve real justice. Mm. Uh, again, Raymond, thank you very much for the call and the perspective. Let's go to Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, welcome. Hey, good the, morning. Can hi. you hear me? I sure can. Okay, I have read, I thank you for this book. I've read it. This will be my third time. Oh, wow, I'm a CAF graduate. <laughs> I read it in 1971 at CAF. Uh-huh. They started a great books class, and it was a white teacher that was teaching the books, and we had black. And I asked her, I said, do you feel qualified? Do you think you're qualified to teach black literature? And I felt bad now as I've gotten older, like, yes, she was qualified. <laughs> I mean, she opened my eyes to reading. Um, there's so much symbolism in Invisible Man that sometimes I have to stop reading it for maybe about a couple hours and then go back and read the book again, because each time I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in it that you don't always take in the first time or even the second time you read it, right? I I know. And the third time I'm like, okay, am I going to have to read this a fourth time? But I think I'm enjoying your book club because everyone's take is... I'm like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even realize that. But if your professor there, I didn't hear him mention Zora Neale Hurston. Mm. She is a a phenomenal female writer. So I don't know. I'm quite sure he's aware of it. But I think perhaps he should give her her due also. Yeah, Uh, 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 I really appreciate the call, Adrian. Uh, Alan Wall, do you want to talk about how Zora Neale Hurston fits into this this universe of of black writers? Well, let me make two points. First of all, I think it is important to have black scholars on here talking about uh, Invisible Man 
And I'll just mention that two major biographers of Ralph Ellison, you ought to try to get them on here. One is Arnold Rampersad, mm-hmm. who wrote the complete biography of, the, of his entire life, and he was teaching at Stanford. He might be retired, but you should be able to get him by phone. Hmm. Uh, and the other is uh, a slightly earlier book by Lawrence Jackson called Ralph Ellison, The Emergence of Genius, which goes up into the uh, production of Invisible Man. Um, these are both two terrific uh, these are fabulous biographies by fabulous scholars, and you ought to include these guys on a program. Yeah, we are trying with both of them. Okay. But, uh, we'll I'm a specialist there. in the literary left, which includes a lot of African-American literature, but I don't pretend that I'm a world authority on, <laughs> on Ralph Ellison himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, one of the interesting things is the complete hatred of the uh, African-American left for Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, she hated Richard Wright and trashed his works, and Richard Wright hated her. And Ellison, I don't think he ever mentioned her. Um, and, of course, she is a figure who um, had some success in the 30s, then went into decline and was discovered by, by black women writers, particularly Alice Walker, mm-hmm. and, uh, much later on. And during this period, she, you know, she was in decline. And she also was a complicated figure. I mean, her treatment of black culture and black issues in their eyes were watching God and, and other books is magnificent. But she herself, you know, opposed the civil rights movement, yeah. uh, opposed Brown versus Board of Education and so on. So that's a contradiction of a lot of these um, a lot of these figures is, you know, their formal official views are can be very different from what they wrote. And it, it's not just African American writers, it's many writers of that period. But she's certainly now a, a giant uh, who ought to be, you know, treated, and she's of that same generation, and she went through some of the same experiences, um, but her politics were very different. I will say on foreign policy issues, she was very radical, um, and she was very much against imperialism and colonialism and, and so on. Yeah. Okay, Alan Wald, Professor Emeritus in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. It was really delightful to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here, and I, I admire you for putting this on your book club reading because it's a very challenging book for everybody. <laughs> yeah. just well, I mean, I think it's. I think it's going to be great to have people like you join the program to help us all work through it and and understand it. So I really do appreciate you taking the time. All right. Also, you should note that uh, we are going to have a number of different authors with us throughout the summer to discuss Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. They include J.M. Holmes and Dr. Carol Anderson, uh, Harriet Washington and Sarah Broom, among lots of others. So uh, stay tuned and we will keep talking about this book and its important themes. Come back tomorrow when we have a conversation about the Supreme Court decision about President Trump's tax returns. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.